Did Abraham Lincoln really write the Gettysburg Address on the back of an envelope while riding on a train? We'll find out from Douglas L. Wilson, author of Lincoln's Sword, The Presidency and the Power of Words, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Douglas L. Wilson, author of Lincoln's Sword, The Presidency and the Power of Words. Before we get back to our second segment, a quick uh, moment of praise for our Anthony, our engineer on the show, who... uh, pays close attention, uh, no sooner do I complain about the repeating commercials when a new one shows up. Uh, I, I appreciate very much the support of World Talk Radio and everybody there and how well they all do their jobs. Thank you all. Um, in our first segment, we were talking about, uh, uh, with Douglas Wilson about some of his early work on the evidence that William Herndon, Lincoln's law partner, compiled after Lincoln's death. Herndon went back and interviewed people who knew Lincoln as a young man, wrote to them, spoke with them, uh, and, and collected a mountain of evidence, which languished in the Library of Congress for many years uh, and developed a bad reputation for unreliability, in part because it contained things like the legend of uh, Lincoln's romance with Anne Rutledge that some people didn't, didn't, want, to, uh, didn't want to talk about. Well, uh, in... Uh, Doug, you and Rodney Davis edited that material and published it in book form under the title Lincoln's Informants. That came out a few years ago now? Yeah, it was finished, uh, I think it was published right at the end of 97, but it carried a 98 copyright date. And and that has just, I find it completely indispensable for anything dealing with Lincoln's early life. And uh, it's impossible to imagine anyone writing about the early Lincoln years without using that volume uh, continuously. And now, this year, 2006, you and Rodney have produced another volume, uh, edited volume, relating to uh, to Herndon, uh, the biography that Herndon wrote of Lincoln. Herndon's Lincoln, yeah. Herndon's Lincoln. It's 
without taking too much time to go into it, its background, I will just say that the uh, the volume you produced is, is marvelous. It, it's very heavily annotated, so the reader can now tell what in it is Herndon talking and what in it is his collaborator Jesse Wyke talking and what in it is just, I guess, fantasy. Um, that, I assume, relied on much of the same yes. material from as, from as Herndon's informants. Right. In fact, uh, it's an extension of Herndon's informants. It was a natural thing to do next uh, because um, because Herndon collected this material for a long time, and uh, and then finally it got written by a collaborator right at the end of Herndon's life. Uh, the collaborator, um, it, well, the thing has been quoted uh, all these years uh, for over a hundred years, published in 1889, um, and. People are constantly citing it, but um, they, in the past they haven't been able to cite the original uh, material, so they cited the use that it was made of in, in Herndon's uh, Lincoln. But as you point out, there's, there's a difference between Herndon's view of Lincoln and his, his collaborator's view, and there's also a difference in the uh, sources that he uses. Um, the collaborator, Jesse Wyke, um, took uh, the Herndon's material, Herndon's archive, he called it his Lincoln record, and he um, he wrote the narrative using these materials. He thought part of his job um, was to uh, rewrite these materials and to, um, a lot of Herndon's notes, to say, uh, to give him his due, a lot of Herndon's notes are staccato, telegraphic, they phrases and so forth, among dashes. Um, he thought it was his job to write these things up so that <laughs> so that the, the, everybody kind of speaks pretty much alike. Uh, the narrator's voice and the voice of the witnesses and so forth all speak kind of the same language. But, of course, inevitably when you rewrite the evidence, you not only change it uh, necessarily, but sometimes you change it uh, substantively. Um, and so it's important to know when, for readers to know, in that book, which is a classic book, and it's going to continue to be read because of its historical importance, it's important for people to know when they're uh, when it's being when the evidence is being twisted or bent, or when people are being misquoted, and so. Now, and Wyke wrote it in the first person as if he were Herndon. Yes, and that's another thing that we tried to point out because I think it's important to know if you read very much of Herndon's own letters, uh, and of which we have literally hundreds. Uh, or his um, drafts, he made some chapter drafts for that book, you'll see that his style is completely different. It's a very herky-jerky style. It's not uninteresting, but it isn't very linear, and it isn't very smooth. Um, and he, it, it, he can go off on tangents, and he can be repetitive and so forth. Um, Wyke tried rewriting some of this stuff, uh, but he couldn't. He couldn't get very far, and so what he ended up doing was to simply compose in a voice that he himself has invented. It's not Herndon's voice. Uh, it's a voice that he says is Herndon. So it's the I of the book. Uh, it works very well, um, and, um, and Herndon himself agreed to it and put his stamp on it, um, but, uh, but it isn't Herndon. It's, it's Wyke. Now, 
moving from from Herndon as a writer to uh, one of the greatest writers, uh, indeed, of the entire English language, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, your your new book is about Lincoln's writing. Yeah. And since our audience uh, on this show is generally well informed, uh, they certainly are familiar with the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural. I thought we might jump right in with the least likely Lincoln speech of all time, the sub-treasury speech of 1840. Uh-huh. Um, because I'm I'm working on a sort of uh, uh, not trivial, but uh, a popular type manuscript of questions and answers about Abraham Lincoln. And in answer to the question, what is Lincoln's worst speech ever, I nominate the sub-treasury speech mm-hmm. in which uh, Lincoln is, is arguing as a young politician in 1840 against the, uh, the plan of putting federal money in a series of sub-treasuries and not having a bank of the United States. And you, in, in this book, uh, defend the speech, uh, uh, it's surprising enough that the speech shows up at all because yes. it's one of the really minor works in, in Lincoln. Uh, but I've always found it uh, so bad as, as, as to laugh out loud. Um, <laughs> it has a very laughable conclusion. It, it, exactly. He, he, he rises to these fervent heights of uh, you know, willing to commit self-immolation and <laughs> die right. in the, the last ditch. Rather than than you know what fight for freedom, independence, uh, union? No, to prevent putting federal money into a sub treasury. Yes. Uh, well, here's what I argue. Like uh, yes, go ahead. Briefly, um, that that speech, which was considered a very effective speech, by the way, and they printed that speech for the camp, for the 1840 campaign, which came up just a few months later. Um, but here's what I argue. The the Lyceum speech, which everybody quotes, which is the first speech of which we have a full text, 1838, Lincoln is showing that he knows how to do oratory. He's a young man, under 30 years old. He's trying to make an impression on his peers. Um, and so he uses a lot of oratorical flourish in that, which was the standard mode of oratory. Uh, this is the golden age of uh, of American oratory, and the great orators were, <laughs> one is tempted to say, almost all flourish. Um, but what happens with Lincoln is he decides between the time he gives that speech and the time he gives the, uh, almost two years later, the time he gives the sub-treasury speech, he's, he's, going to, he, he's not going to do that anymore, and he doesn't do it anymore. Uh, well, you might say there's a little bit in the temperance speech of 1842. But what I try to show is that he adopts a plain style, and that would be the mode in which we know him. So I try to take a section out of the sub-treasury speech, or he's making an argument that taking money out of circulation, which the sub-treasury system would do, instead of putting in a national bank, which is what would happen, um, the uh, there would be problem for people and it would it would hurt the economy and so forth he does that in a very plain language very concrete um it's not sparkling it's not scintillating but it's very direct and comes through very clearly and there's a kind of eloquence of clarity that we know lincoln for um in his later writing and what i say is i think you can feel the beginnings of the movement toward that in the sub-treasury speech. And, and, of course, 
one of the reasons that uh, it gets so much prominence is, here again, it's another speech of which we have a complete text. He made all kinds of speeches in his early life. We only have a complete text for just a, a small handful. The uh, It was reminding me of, of a book by uh, the late Kenneth uh, Samil, uh, Democratic Eloquence, where, where he argues that there's a this is a moment in the mid early 19th century where Americans are trying to find some kind of appropriate political speech yes. that reflects a democracy uh, and yet does distinguish itself from ordinary day-to-day talk. Uh, you know, the high-flown rhetoric of the golden age of oratory doesn't quite work as well in the Jacksonian period. I mean, that is the golden age, but but it, it, it's not. It works for, more for Whigs than it does for Democrats. It, it does. It, it's not accessible to the common man. It's not the way ordinary people talk. But a politician who just talked like an ordinary person would seem radically inappropriate. Yeah. And Lincoln is is, is the person who's ultimately going to solve that problem uh, in his own way, not yes. not something that others could follow necessarily. It's a That's right. He, it's not a crusade with him. It's a personal uh, journey toward... Uh, Effective political exposition. So he develops that. So, so the end of the sub-treasury speech is just him saying, oh, I can still do this. Uh, I think so. Uh, uh, the audience wait, wanted that peroration. Uh, the peroration was a part, an exciting part of the speech, and people went to hear speeches, and they expected that. Uh, I think... This is, I think this is a point made by Basler, and I, I agree with him on that. But they wanted a little fireworks at the end. I think that's what Basler says, and I think maybe that's what Lincoln is trying to give him. It 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 has a kind of comic side now, but I don't think they thought it was comic then. No, it, it's just out of proportion with the the matter at stake. The yes, the, the rhetorical right fireworks. But it's interesting to compare that, or you say the Lyceum speech of a few years earlier. It's like writing a uh, dull but traditional doctoral dissertation to show you can do it. And then you can do your own research and write your own books once you've uh, gotten I, a stamp of approval. And I think that Lincoln discovered that it wasn't him. He could do it, but it wasn't him. He was a mimic, you know. That's one thing they all say about him when he was young. And one uh, an, an insight of uh, his friend Joshua Speeds that I've always uh, found very instructive, he says he couldn't copy anybody else. He was, everything that he did, uh, he... He, he did. A, he was his own. He was original in everything he did, and I think that's a, that's a pretty good. It may not be a hundred percent true, but it's it's a very good insight. Hmm. Well, leaping ahead to more uh, more familiar uh, Lincoln works, but still still not the most familiar. You have a very interesting chapter on Lincoln's public letters, or several chapters on different public letters that Lincoln wrote. Um, to take one of them, the uh, uh, the, the Conkling letter mm-hmm. in 1863, yeah, August of 63. Lincoln at that point is is trying to explain uh, how the war is going, and the question I wanted to ask, making sure I've got it. Yes, um, it, it it says a number of. of it, it, it argues the uh, the importance of using African American soldiers. Yes, that's that's what he decided to make the the highlight of his speech. And and it includes the uh, 
the very pithy argument uh, that you, you to the white audience that is going to hear the letter uh, read aloud, where he says, "You." Uh, um, let me make sure I'm not confusing us with the other letters. The um, that, that you're not will you don't want uh, you don't want to fight to, to free the Negroes, um, but they're willing to fight for you. Yes. And then after making points like this that are quite impressive, he goes and gives this little survey of how the war is going, which starts with the, the famous line, the father of waters flows unvexed. Flows unvexed to the sea. But he goes on from there then to uh, use a bunch of figures of speech and uh, uh, nicknames for the different states. John Hay calls it hideously bad rhetoric. He does. And what I'm wondering is, is it possible that someone, John Hay perhaps himself, actually drafted that passage, and in the best uh, method of increasing tension for our audience, we're going to have to take a short break and come back to that question sure. uh, in just a moment. Happy to. We're talking with Douglas L. Wilson today about Lincoln's writing and uh, Doug Wilson's new book, Lincoln's Sword. We'll be back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 